All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you so much for the inspired word of God. Thank you for this little church on a hill in North Dighton. Thank you for the opportunity to live out this life, however long it may be, however many days you give us, by means of your mercy and your grace and your love. Thank you, especially as we've been learning, for this opportunity to evangelize others, to somehow partake in the miracle of salvation. Thank you, Father, for these privileges. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a night like this a reality so that we might have this living hope within us. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message title is Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? By Grace They Were Prepared, Part 33. We spent the past couple of lessons talking about the things the human mind just cannot seem to fully comprehend. And that's a good thing, because that's the space where faith abides. There's many things that we just aren't, just aren't disclosed to us for a variety of reasons, and that's God's sovereign will. And I love it because it's taught me humility and faith. Uh, it's tested my faith. It's tested your faith. Um, there's a lot of good things um, that aren't included in the Bible that only God knows. And so um, we've been talking about some of those things. And one of those recurring themes has been supernatural peace. Whenever I read the Apostle Paul's words regarding peace, there's only one thing that comes to mind, and it's faith. Go to Philippians 4.6. Philippians 4.6. When I read these words of his regarding peace, <clears throat> the only thing that comes to mind is faith. Philippians 4.6. Some of you could use a, probably a big old dose of this. Maybe you had a bad day today. Maybe it was a testing day for you today. Be anxious for nothing. I just kind of, oh. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Be anxious for nothing. Whatever's bothering you, go like this. Chances are it's not important. In the grand scheme of things, let's face it, you probably have some control freak issue that you're dealing with and you're not letting it go, and you're white-knuckling, and you're anxious, and you're full of whatever, worry and angst, and let it go. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, yeah, that's right. It surpasses all comprehension. will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So again, when something surpasses all human comprehension, where does that put you? It puts you in the space that we call faith. When something's beyond your own 
legitimate comprehension as a human being, you are now abiding in the space we call faith. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to abide in that space. Again, the only thing that comes to mind whenever I read such patches, passages or what often comes to mind is faith. Up here on the board, on that topic, it's the one thing, faith. It's the one thing that allows mere man to reconcile otherwise incomprehensible realities of God, beginning with a salvation plan. Um, as I prayed before class, I mean, we know a lot of what goes on at salvation, but we don't know everything. We know a lot of what goes on in conversion, but we don't know everything. We know a lot of what goes on in the preparation of one's soil to make it ready for the seed, the gospel seed, but we don't know everything. But we know God saves. With man it's impossible, with God it's possible. I'm not going to lie to you and say I understand every aspect of how he gets that done because it's a miracle a miracle that any of us are saved. Especially DJ, obviously. Right? He who's forgiven much, loves much. So faith is the one thing that allows mere man to reconcile otherwise incomprehensible realities of God beginning with his salvation plan. I like the way Spurgeon, a lot of you are keen on Spurgeon. I am too. Charles Spurgeon spoke to this topic. I know this is a little bit brainiac, but just bear with it. <clears throat> that God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory to each other. Again, what he's dealing with is the a treatise on the sovereignty of God, God's sovereign will, election, and the free will of man. People get tangled, which is difficult to think that way. So he says that God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. I do not believe that they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil but they certainly shall be one in eternity. How do we know? Because by faith, the Bible tells us that you have a free will, but God also predestines those. He elects those. He saves those. He draws those to himself. But this is where faith comes in. This is why I'm quoting him. I do not believe they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil but they certainly shall be one in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. That's faith. We can't explain everything. 
Have you ever tried to explain that to a person, especially an unbeliever? That you have a free will, but God holds you accountable, yet he predestines those. That he elects, but yet you have a free will. That he foreordains everything before human history began, but yet you still have a free will. Have you ever tried to explain that without getting a brain ache? So where do you go after that? It's called faith. And that's what I love about Spurgeon. Brilliant expositor of Scripture, brilliant preacher, um, wonderful source for all of us to think about today. And even he said, eh, can't tell you. <laughs> but I trust God, essentially. This is what he's saying in his words. I trust God and I have faith because God doesn't lie. And if both of those things in Scripture, then darn it, they're both true. As I was listening to Tuesday evening's lesson, I was reminded of this one simple fact. Accepting God's sovereignty, instead of trying to change God, one must surrender to Him as He is, as His justice and righteousness demands. He is Lord after all. Again, accepting God's sovereignty. Instead of trying to change God, one must surrender to him as he is, as his justice and righteousness demands. He is Lord after all. It's one of the reasons why contemporary Christianity is so foul nowadays. It's because they never treat the sovereignty of God. They never talk about what his righteousness, what his justice demands. They talk about him being somehow so loving that he will compromise his own justice to accommodate today's man. That is a lie. That is a flat-out lie. But everybody seems to tolerate it. We noted a very familiar passage on Tuesday regarding a thief on the cross, specifically that he was repentant, which is true. However, I wanted to, for clarity's sake, I want to amplify that we have no idea about the length of this man's conversion. We don't. We only have what the Bible says, which is limited. So we do not have the right to speculate. I just want to make that clear. It's quite possible that this man's conversion began to take place long before he was hanging to the side of Jesus on his cross. We don't know. Does anybody else know any other details about that guy? No. It's quite possible that the conversion process started long before he was even on the cross. I was telling Scott that before class. Think of an individual who gets, you know, say they murder someone 20 years ago, they get sentenced to, mur to, to die. They get saved 10 years ago, and then they're on the electric chair or something like that, and Jesus just happens to go with it. Jesus happens to be standing there and says, today you're going to see me be with me in paradise. Okay, sounds like the, the guy on the cross to me. He could have been saved even before, we know. But everybody likes that punchline, don't they? Everybody likes to speculate about, you know, how quickly he was converted and how quickly this all happened. We don't know. How do you know? There's no other details about the guy in the Bible. So I just want to be clear. And this is why context is so very important and why we never want to speculate. I know it's popular to speculate along those lines, but we just don't have the right. 
So it's quite possible that his conversion began long before his cross. So just remember this and do not fall into the trap of over-speculating and assuming that the thief's entire conversion happened in that single moment in time. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. You know what? We don't know. So we don't speculate. Again, just a side note for the sake of clarity. What we do know, what we do know, and that we rightly can teach, is that somehow, someway, the thief's soil had been adequately prepared to receive the gospel. Again, I don't know how that happened. That You'd be asking me something I'm not even capable of responding to. I don't know. All I know is he was on the cross and he was, he was saved, obviously. And the other guy wasn't. But we do know that somehow his soil was prepared adequately to receive the gospel. This brings up another key principle from Tuesday's lesson up here on the board. Sowing seed on unprepared soil. Here's a good question. This, ha- this ties to sovereignty, how we started off. How do you present a solution to a person who doesn't first understand the problem statement? This is the way many people present the gospel. How do you present a solution to a person who doesn't first understand the problem statement? This is the way many people present the gospel. I'm going to give you an analogy. It's not my best, but hey, whatever. If a random doctor came up to you today and said, you need to have your brain operated on immediately or else you're going to die in three days. You'd say, uh, you're not touching my brain, mister. And maybe you find out he's a real surgeon or whatever. And then he says, I saw your, re- your recent CAT scans and you have a tumor. Then you might say, oh, I didn't realize I had a life-threatening illness. Please take it out so that I may live. The moral of the story is that if you never understood first that you had such a problem, you'd never really accept the solution from the, the physician, and in our analogy, the great physician himself. Jesus said he came to save who? The sick. Not the ones who thought they were righteous. Did he not say that? The ones, in other words, who understood the problem statement. Not the ones who didn't think there was a problem. Do you understand? A person who doesn't think they're sick doesn't go to the doctors. They don't want healing because they don't think they're sick. So as evangelists, guess what we have to be? We have to be the subordinates of the great physician who says you're all sick. You're sick, like really sick. So again, it's the point on the board, sowing seed on unprepared soil. How do you present a solution to a person who doesn't first understand the problem statement? This is the way many people present the gospel, and it's a tragedy. I mean, it's weak, it's pathetic. It's, I mean, I've done it. I'm not throwing stones at anybody, but that seems to be the way it's done nowadays because God's so offensive to our own society nowadays that it's hard to get anybody even to say the word Jesus without being offended. One of the primary causes of eternal spiritual death is that many people hear the physician himself 
by means of his spirit, of course, because he is the spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9. And they blaspheme him by saying, I don't really have a problem. Just look at me. I'm doing fine as I am. In fact, I'm the king of my own realm. This was a great point from Tuesday's lesson also. Um, those are antichrists, by the way. Those are people that stand up against Christ. Unbelievers have and maintain their own little kingdom where they are Lord. As honest evangelists, our job is to deliver the smashing news that their little kingdom is garbage. And this came out on Tuesday. Avoid the temptation to soften the truth when we give the gospel. That's our job, basically. Unabashedly, unashamedly, unapologetically, give them the truth. And if they're upset, if they're offended, do you really think that's a novel topic? Ever heard of a stumbling block in the Bible? Do you really think he was the rock of offense that if you represent him, that you're not going to become that same thing? Think of this in very practical terms. Again, with the following attitude, this came out on Sunday and Tuesday, evangelize without apology. And this, this was something that Scott said. He said, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell you the truth. It's the funniest thing. We'll go to work and do all kinds of crazy things to do our job. But the greatest job, the greatest commission we've ever had on our life is to deliver the gospel. And we won't do it. Many of us won't. We won't do it, or we'll water it down. That's not doing your job. I mean, it's, you've been enlisted as a soldier for Christ, right? You're also an ambassador. That came up on Tuesday, but let's pretend you're a soldier. What good is being equipped to fight if you never pick up your, your gun? If you never shoot the enemy? You're just, a, you're just a facade. You just look good in a uniform, maybe, on Sunday mornings? I don't know. But as it came out on Tuesday, we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't tell the truth. That's the attitude you should have. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell you the truth. One last thought from Tuesday's lesson worth sharing up here on the board. Omission as a form of enablement. We don't have the ability to deliver someone from their arrogance. We don't have the power. But we certainly can encourage it by not telling them the whole truth regarding the gospel. We call that enablement or enabling others to continue in dysfunction. We don't have the ability to deliver someone from their arrogance. Only God can do that. But we certainly can encourage it by not telling them the whole truth regarding the gospel. I'll give you another analogy. Suppose you're an elementary school teacher. And keep in mind this point on the board. Suppose you're an elementary school teacher. You have to teach math, let's say. How much more difficult would it be to teach your students if you could only, if you could only tell them when they were correct in their calculations? Have you ever seen a first grader do math? It's ugly. Right? It's ugly. Right? You spend the vast majority of your time, what? Correcting them. That's not right. Two plus two is not 5,000, kid. 
right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not. They start adding zeros. Oh, I learned a new, you know, number. Yeah, sorry, John. So, but imagine the task at hand. Imagine if you had to teach math, and the only feedback you could give them is when they did something correct. Isn't it arguably even more effective, especially at the start of a new subject matter, to be able to point out a student's mistakes? Of course. In fact, you'd be enabling mistake after mistake if you never corrected their thinking, because they would just keep going on thinking they're right, correct? Maybe you don't want to hurt their feelings, you know, because they're just wee little kids. They must be Irish. They're just, right? So maybe you don't want to hurt their feelings because you're from the, you know, everybody received a trophy school of thinking. Yet there are many people who do just that with the precious truth about God's salvation plan for mankind. They don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So they enable them by omission. Well, if I tell them about the sovereignty of God, they're not going to like me. If I tell them they have this problem and they need to address it, not just academically like, oh, I guess I'm a sinner because I, I've sinned. I know I've sinned. I don't think I'm perfect, but I don't think I'm totally depraved. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, but yes, you are. Oh, but yes, you are. You are fundamentally rotten to the core. How dare you? Don't blame me. Blame Jesus. I'm here on his behalf. You are rotten to the core. You mean I can't clean it up? I can't just say, well, I've identified all these problems areas and I'll just make myself better and that'll be good for God? No, that thing is depraved. That, that flesh that you were born with is grotesque to God. And it's dead. And the sovereign God will not have it. does not plan on fellowshipping with that stinking corpse for all of eternity. So you see, you really do have a problem. You might use different language, I'm just saying. Especially if you are teaching little kids. <laughs> you are a stinking corpse. <laughs> I don't believe little kids understand the depravity anyways, but that's another story. So maybe you don't want to hurt their feelings. and Maybe everybody gets a trophy. There are many people that present the gospel truth minus the sovereignty, minus the objectionable part because of that very thing. Hence a principle from Sunday and Tuesday. Why do some evangelists stumble? One of the primary reasons people reject the gospel is that they respect man's self-esteem over God's. That's what it basically comes down to. I don't want to rob this person of their self-esteem. But don't you realize their self-esteem is completely in the flesh? Destroy it. Watch it go down in flames and cheer along the way. You don't have to gloat. But I pray for that stuff all the time. I know. All the time. I say, God, and this is for you guys. I say, crush them. I'm serious. All of you, probably everybody in here, I've prayed that way for you guys. Oh, my God, you're awful, dude. I'm really not. I love you. I want God to crush you to the point where your stinking flesh has no room to breathe and it chokes out. That's what I want. If that's violent to you, oh well. Welcome to my world. This is a fight. 
This is a battle. So one of the primary reasons people reject the gospel is that they respect man's self-esteem over God's. As a result, they'd rather insult God's sovereignty rather than the sovereignty currently ruling an unbeliever's heart. They'd rather, they'd rather insult God than that which is ruling an unbeliever's heart. It's weak. It's pathetic. There's a lot of churches out there that do it. Let me give you something to think about. Everyone in so-called Christianity seems to love the following passage, don't they? Go to Ephesians 2.8. Everybody loves this passage, right? I love it too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's amazing. Ephesians 2.8. Start there. Everybody loves it. I do too. So don't get all black and white. I just love it in context. That's all. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. People are like, that's fantastic. And it really is, is it not? I mean, it's amazing. It's incredible. Tremendous passage. So I couldn't agree more. However, how dare we speak those words outside the full context of Paul's reference to the gospel as stated in the preceding verses. How dare we just pluck that out? Don't know what I'm saying? Well, let's look and see. Look at Ephesians 2.1. Let's go back then. Look at what he says. So he opens up with Ephesians 1. This, this is, you want to really be encouraged by Scripture, read Ephesians over and over. But So he finishes up Ephesians 1. He gets to Ephesians 2. And look at how he starts off. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not, you know, oh, are you a sinner? Yeah, I guess I've sinned in the past, so I guess I'm a sinner, right? Yeah. No, you were dead. What? Wait a minute. No, I feel pretty alive, dude. No, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. You are a fleshly corpse. You are dead, separate from God. You understand this? You are depraved. You are wretched. There are none righteous, not even one. Do you get all what I'm saying? I have no idea what you're saying. I just thought I had to say that I, since I've sinned, I'm a sinner. And then it was going to heaven. No. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You see how Paul's starting off? This is the value of context. Everybody wants to go to verse 8, pluck it out, and say, you see, this is how we present the gospel. That's not how you present the gospel. If someone's soil's already ready, great. But look what Paul does over and over. It's not just this passage, by the way. Paul is never laxed on the sovereignty of God or the justice of God or the demands of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were what? You ready? By nature, children of wrath. You, let's say that again. You ready? By nature, children of wrath. Wait a minute. So what you're saying is God has wrath against the unbelievers? Yeah. As I mentioned on Sunday, it's food for thought, remember? 
What does God send to hell? Sin or a sinner? Sinner. Sinner. I guess he has some wrath against some people, doesn't he? I guess all this garbage about God being so uh, loving that he overlooks, that he's willing to compromise his own justice to accommodate man is completely garbage because that's exactly what it is. We were born children by nature of wrath. Is that not strong language? Is that not strong enough language for you? Because I can read it again. But let's just skip to verse 8. Come on. This stuff bothers me. It's too visceral. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. Last time I checked, it's the biggest decision any human being will ever have to consider. Ever. And they're not just saying, well, I guess I sinned. I did lie that one time and I stole candy. Right? It's got thief. Right? I stole candy. So I guess I'm a sinner, but because I sinned, I can point to at least a couple of sins that I'm willing to admit in public. So I guess I have to say I'm a sinner. Are you a sinner? I am. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I, I guess I do because I want to go to heaven. Okay, cool. You're in. No. No. Nope. 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 That's not what Jesus said. But yet, isn't that what's taught? You bet. You bet it is. Nobody wants to say by nature children of wrath. Nobody wants to talk about the dirty underbelly of this whole thing. The filth. We just want to sweep it under the rug and play this little game. So I hope you see the full context of Paul's thoughts as he's developing them, as he ramps up towards the popular verse 8 and 9. How does he start off? <laughs> you are dead. Children of wrath, by nature. Let's talk about that. Before we get to the good stuff, let's talk about the problem statement. Before we get to the solution, let's talk about the problem statement. So do you see what I see? I mean, up here on the board, and I'll call it Paul's gospel. I hope you know the context of what I'm saying, the way he presented the gospel. To Paul, God's sovereignty was always in view. He would have been utterly, I'm convinced of this, utterly convinced. He would have been infuriated by what today's Christendom represents. He would have been appalled. To Paul, God's sovereignty was always in view in every presentation of the gospel he ever made. And if it wasn't explicitly there like it is here, at least in part, it was implied. If you know anything about Paul, you know that the sovereignty of God was always there. The justice of God was always in view. An uncompromising, immutable God was ever-present in his heart. And he wasn't interested in lying to anyone. Paul was offensive to many because he refused to accommodate man at the expense of dishonoring God's sovereignty. He refused. Can we all say that? Again, to Paul, God's sovereignty was always in view in every presentation of the gospel he ever made. Paul was offensive to many, just like you are, just like I am. There are some people, I'm convinced of this too. If I was to, you know, take this recording and then go show it to the average church out there, they'd be like, who the hell is that guy? 
He's an offensive individual, isn't he? Look at him. All shiny. Look at him. They'd pick on something. You know, they'd find some stupid, stupid thing, stupid bum thing. Right? They would find something about me to discredit me when all I'm really trying to do is defend this. That's all I'm trying to do. I just want to be honest. I don't want to add or subtract from the Bible. I just want to be honest. And if, you know, the sovereign God of the universe says, hey, look, I've got some justice that has to be satisfied here. I need people to understand the depravity. I need there to be some counting of the cost here. I need there to be some, you know, I don't want to say it this way, but you know what I mean, coming to Jesus not some flippant attitude about, yeah, I've sinned, so I guess I'm a sinner. Because I'm sovereign, and I have every right. I created you. I don't have to accommodate you. I don't have to move towards you. Out of love, I will draw you to me. But my son, who is me, God, he's a rock, and he don't move. Same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So why is everybody interested in trying to morph them? You know why, and I know why. Because they can't fill their seats. It's because they're cowards. Half the people that stand behind pulpits, convinced of it, shouldn't even be there. Should be ushered right off this evening. Men and women alike. (laughs) (laughs) So he's offensive. So get used to it. You'll be offensive if you stand up for truth. So it's not surprising that the first three verses in this beautiful passage, Ephesians 2, begin with an absolute indictment on the depravity of man. Why does he do this? As we've been learning, to prepare the soil for sowing the seed. Why do you think Jesus taught his apostles the parable of the soils in the first place? So that they would have discernment so that they would understand the various stages of infertile and fertile soil. Learn to recognize pretenders, is what he was saying. Learn to recognize the emotional ones. Learn to recognize the apostates. Learn to recognize true fruit when it actually is born, because that's when you'll know, and by the way, it will also persevere. Learn to recognize these things. Because before you go throwing Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and you all listen up, before you go throwing Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 at someone, why don't you throw Ephesians 2 at them? And stop being a coward. That's what Jesus was saying. Are their soils ready? Well, they're all emotional and they're la, la, la. Well, watch them then. Where are they in three weeks? Six months. I don't know. They still around? Because when my father changes someone, he really changes them. That's all Paul was doing. Did you know you're depraved? We're not even to that good part yet, are we? Look at verse 4. But God, God, so we get the problem statement, now comes the solution. But do not forget the import of the problem statement. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, now here we have it, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I feel like throwing up when I hear people say, oh, it's works to repent. Shame on you. Shame, shame, shame on you. We know from Scripture that God even gives repentance. So what are you talking about? Are you saying that the grace of God is shameful? What is wrong with you? If the Bible says that repentance is by grace, how the heck can it be works, you idiots? Morons. And oh, by the way, I was one of them. So I'm not casting stones. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I mean, what else can we say? You're much better off with the whole context, my friends. The gospel requires context. So what you see in just these ten verses is a pristine example for all of us to follow regarding evangelism. It's beautiful. You say, man, how am I going to evangelize this person? Read Ephesians 2. I'm serious. Don't go right to verse 8. Start with verse 1. Seriously, honest to goodness, read it. Say, oh man, I'm going to read. Matter of fact, I'm going to take my Bible. Here's a concept. I'm going to take my Bible with me, and I'm going to read it in front of the person, Ephesians 2. I'm just going to read it. Hey, listen, my friend, I don't want you to think I'm saying this. I want you to see it right from the Word of God, okay? Any questions? Now we can talk. What's he mean by this whole, what do you mean I'm depraved? What, what, is this, what do you mean I'm dead? Well, let's talk. So what you see in these 10 verses is a pristine example of how to evangelize even. The method, the, the contents. What you see is the problem statement and the solution. Not just the solution, as some like to skip forward and present. Believe it or not, what is under attack is the grace of God. Like I just got all fired up about the whole repentance thing, you know, depravity. This I don't even, I'm not, I mean, people are all goofed up on grace. It's unbelievable. But grace is what's under attack. And as I taught you on Sunday, one specific manifestation of this assault on his grace is with this fancy theological word, although it does show up in Scripture, propitiation. Gener, uh, generically, we say that it means to placate, soothe, if you would, an offended deity's wrath. Specifically in Christianity, we say that God's wrath and righteousness are satisfied by the cross of Jesus Christ, not by works. We just saw that Ephesians 2.89. This paves the way for believers' justification. In other words, God can impute righteousness to an individual if he's satisfied with the payment. Just like a judge, you know, judge gavel comes down, you're good. You're good to go now. But if he's not satisfied, the gavel never comes down. If he's not satisfied with some payment, obviously the payment is Jesus Christ himself, who's God, then that's not going to happen. 
And that's what we learned in Romans 3.25 up here on the board. Whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. By the way, Paul wasn't the only apostle to speak to this directly. The apostle John spoke to it directly also. Go to 1 John 4.9. 1 John 4.9. So propitiation is not a one-time event in Scripture. It's not just this fancy word that we dwell on. It was something that the apostles knew about. But as you're turning, I want you to think about it. The implication is that someone's angry, right? If someone has to be soothed, propitiated, soothed, placated, then someone must be angry. <laughs> By nature, you were born what? Children of wrath. That means God had a certain anger, wrath towards you in your sin. Because God hates sin, you see. And you were the very embodiment of sin in your flesh. So to skip over all that stuff is really to lose the, the problem statement of the gospel itself, which a lot of people do. Look at 1 John 4, 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. You ready for this? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's an attack on not just his grace, but the motivating factor for grace, which is love. To skip over the sovereignty of God, the part of God that says, I demand to be propitiated or else I cannot justify you. I will not impute my own son's perfect righteousness to your account. That will never happen unless I'm satisfied. What's your access to that? Believe. And God will only draw the humble. We don't have a whole lot to do with it, but that speaks to the Spurgeon quote at the beginning of class. All I know is that what the Word of God says. He draws those whom He elected before the start of human history. But the Bible also says that we can say yes or no. Somewhere between that is faith that God's going to do what's right. That God's going to draw those whom He's going to draw. Save those whom He's going to save. How that all happens... I mean, I know what it says in the Bible, and I have faith that it happens, and it happens with integrity. That's the perspective that we all should live with up here on the board. God had to judge sin. His own justice demanded it. He chose to bear the penalty himself. This is how he is both just and the justifier. That was Romans 3.26. He's just and the justifier. Mind-blowing, right? He had to, ju he had to judge sin. But then he also chose to bear that sin. The flesh hates that, as we talked about. For the for the of Romans three twenty six on the board for the for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where do we get our faith from? God. It's incredible. It's incredible. The grace of God is stupendous. It's un, 
It's unfathomable. The grace of God. Why do you think Satan does everything in his power to attack it, to undermine it, to lessen it even? To call something that is a gift from God, like repentance, whatever, a works. What? How can it be a work if it's a gift from God? Read the Bible. People need to quit with their preconceptions. Well, you know, here's the other one. I'm going to go off on a little rail here, but whatever. I think there's a lot of wounded people out there. That's what I think. I'm not, that's why when I say I'm not judging, I really am not judging anybody. Some people come from religious backgrounds. Some people come from religious backgrounds that they never knew was religion. A lot of you. Um, and they're wounded. And they're gun-shy. They don't, they don't like the idea. They hear the term works, and they like literally run for the hills. But yet the Bible talks about works being a function of true faith. But as soon as you bring up works, they're like, you're a legalist. I'm not a legalist. I'm just saying he changed me and I'm doing, I'm bearing fruit. What do you want from me? Read James for crying out loud. Leave me alone. Everybody's gun shy. Do you understand? The, the, the legalistic people that came from certain religions, they're gun shy too. In their own way. Because they've been burned so there's, there's sort of people that have been burned and they, got, they bear these scars and they're all gun-shy. Their idea of grace is perverted even as a result of their own muddied past, I guess, confused past. So the best I can tell you is what I've gone through, which is really just <clears throat> letting go. Letting go and really trusting in the faith that you've been given. Saying to yourself, you know what? There's just not everything in this book. He gives us what we need. But there's a lot of stuff that he hasn't disclosed to us. So we need to stop making up little micro-doctrines in our own soul to satisfy our own little desires to put God in a box a certain way. But I really want to peddle a watered-down gospel, so I don't want to talk about the sovereignty of God or, the, or repentance or any of that stuff. I'm just, you know what? I'm just going to call it works. It's an abomination. With that said, happy Thursday. We need to get back to our primary course of study. I'm almost out of time, but I'm going to give it my college try here because we'll never finish. We're on like part 33, and the last like three of them haven't really been on the primary. But that's, hey, that's his doing, right? Let's do what we can. Uh, let's see. Yeah, last Thursday we, we read the whole of John 13, if you remember. Wonderful passage. Let's just grab the final scene where Jesus said, you know, where I go, you cannot come. Remember that? referring to his ascension to heaven. Go to John 13, 37. We'll plug on quickly here because this is points of review. We can speed it up. I think the main or the key message for this evening's message has been established, but we'll just do a little bit more groundwork here before we close. John 13, 37. So we read the whole of John last Thursday. 
And this was this 37 is right after when uh, Jesus said, where I go, you cannot come. So Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? Typical Peter. I will lay down my life for you. <laughs> Get a laugh. Nobody else finds that funny? Only Jeremy and I? Jesus answered, will you, obviously not, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, not for not, but John 13, you know how the story goes, it's true. John 13 is a very intimate chapter. That's what the Spirit had us focus on. It's a very intimate chapter, as the Spirit taught us. As you can imagine, training up the apostles required a lot of face time with Jesus as he was eventually going to leave them behind. And so it's not a whole lot like what he does with under-shepherds. There's a lot of face time. There's a reason why he ordains churches like this. There's a reason why local assemblies exist. And a local assembly, we have the privilege of having a building. Local assembly could be over there. It could be in a field. You don't need a building. We just happen to be graced out with a building. But don't be mistaken. Uh, you don't need a building. But nonetheless, training up the apostles required a lot of face time with Jesus as he was eventually going to leave them behind. But as Scripture reveals to us, even after he left, the apostles needed to learn. That's an interesting thing because he also made this statement to them, knowing this, of course, up here on the board, John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So he, Jesus is going to leave, and they don't know everything yet. It seems apparent that they don't know everything. We learn that with understanding, right? I mean, Jesus is getting ready to leave, and like, oh, you still don't understand. I wonder who the greatest is. Come on, guys. Does this mean the kingdom's coming? Uh -huh. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So this is a beautiful thing because we have the Spirit indwelling us as believers as well. So in context, this means that Jesus knew the apostles had much more to learn, even though he had sufficiently trained them up prior to his departure to kickstart the early church. But he didn't leave them alone. He left them with the power of God, the Holy Spirit. The entire plan rested on the same power source that we all have today. That is the helper that he promised. So let's pick up with our work, uh, working framework here up here on the board. We've already been through understanding. This is, these are the five, five things at least that we could point to for our lessons that the, the apostles lacked. First was understanding, then humility, faith, commitment, and power. So a perfect example of a lack of understanding was that after he informed them of his impending suffering, they responded this way. Go to Acts 1.6. Go to Acts 1, verse 6. I just want you to see this twice. We've only gone to Acts once. So the apostles obviously lacked understanding. One of the places where we noted this was with Acts chapter 1. Look at verse 6. So this is, of course, after, he, you know, the context is, you know, he's about ready to suffer on the cross. So he's going to leave. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Come on, man. You see, they were so preoccupied with the kingdom because that was their expectation. 
So they lacked understanding. They didn't understand everything that was going on. And, you know, some of it's legitimate and some of it's, you know, just them not them being them. So Jesus had to break the news to them again, more directly as required. Look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. If you're worried about the kingdom, don't worry about it because the kingdom's way in the future. And you don't know when. We don't even know when. And this is thousands of years later. We don't know when he's going to return. We don't know. And this is what he told them. It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. And he says it so he redirects them now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. In other words, you have a job to do. Stop worrying about the kingdom. And in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. It's a big job, by the way, is what he was saying. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And just so you know, I was thinking about this as I was reading. I had, and I'm not picking on Madhava. Madhava is the leader over there in India. And, um, you know, the relationship is interesting because a lot of, probably about half the time we're talking about, you know, support and finances and stuff like that, which I'm good with. I mean, I get it. That's the way it is. But I put him on the block today. I said, um, are you out there evangelizing? Are you spreading the gospel or are you just asking for donations and then you're playing Santa Claus, essentially? Are you out there spreading the gospel? Because that's why I went to India. I mean, it's wonderful that we were able to feed some people and, you know, give them sewing machines now and help somebody with a business, you know, who we know are Christians, these kinds of things. But um, this is about the gospel to me. Make no mistake about it. So my expectation is I'm just not going to keep throwing money at you so you can play Santa Claus. I mean, that's great. You're showing Christ's heart. I get it. The needy, blah, blah, blah. I said, make sure you're taking care of the, those of the faith first, because that's what the Bible says. I reminded him of that last week. But I also put him on, I said, hey, listen, man. You're a believer, man. You're, you have the great commission on your heart as well. Are you doing these things? Are you going? Because this is free. We talk about money a lot, but you know what? The gospel is free. You can go out there and spread the gospel and walk up and down those streets, right, Joey? All those streets. You can be walking up and down those streets. They don't want to hear it. Join the club. They don't want to hear it up here either. And that's what I told them. See how popular I stay. I don't know. He seems all right with it, but he, who knows? All I know is that that's what the Spirit... I'm reading the Scripture. The same Spirit authored, inspired this Scripture, right? Same spirit was filling me when I was talking to him about going out and evangelizing. And it was a hard job. But the beauty about giving the gospel is it's free. Anyways, just thought I'd give you that little tidbit. Um, verse 9. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So they didn't get the kingdom. That's what they were looking for. They didn't get it. He said, I'm redirecting you. You're not going to get that thing you keep worrying about and whether or not who's going to be the greatest in it. We have a big job to do. That's verse 8. You've got a big job to do. I'm leaving. I'm going to give you my spirit who's going to empower you. He's going to, you're going to be able to do supernatural things. You know what? He's actually going to remind you of all the things that I taught you. He's going to bring them into remembrance. He's going to put words in your mouth like some of you will attest. You know, you're like, I don't know where it came from. It just came out. It must have been the Holy Spirit. And it really was. He's going to put words in your mouth to speak the truth. We have a big job to do. 
big job, because I'm out of here. It would have been interesting, I'll leave you with this, it would have, I was thinking about this, it would have been interesting to hear the conversations amongst the apostles in that moment, wouldn't it? Like, where were they, like, you know, where are their heads at? It would have been a whirlwind. It's not like the ministry was that long. This ministry has been around three times longer than Jesus' public ministry. Just put that into perspective. It wasn't a long time. And they were raised a certain way. Some fishermen, you know, they weren't always, you know, they were, as the, the educated crowd said, they weren't educated. So this would have been a whirlwind thing for them. And, you know, they were expecting a kingdom, and Christ said, no, not yet. You're going to be I'm going to send you my helper. And What? Thought if we followed you, you're the Messiah. We're going to be like, you know, since we're like buddy, buddy, we're going to be like on the inside. We're going to have like positions of like prestige and stuff like that. And that's where their mind was at. So it would have been interesting when Jesus went away, you know, what the conversations were like. Wouldn't have been? I think so. I think it would have been interesting. And we probably could have learned a lot. And I think that as our title of the series goes, I think we would have been encouraged. Because we would have been like, they're like jackasses like us. <laughs> right? They're, they say and think the same crap we think. They're like idiots like we are. I know. Right? God used Baal and the ass, right? I mean, if he can use a, a jackass, just saying. He can use you. Draw whatever comparisons you would like. Amen? Happy Thursday. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together, to laugh together, to learn together, to grow together, Father. We know that it's by your grace alone. No one should boast. And all of this activity, Father, thank you for the privilege of doing this, and thank you also for the opportunity and the privilege to bring your beloved gospel out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask for traveling mercies as we do so. As we go back to our homes and ponder these things, we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.